You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is February the 10th, which means Valentine's Day is now only four days away, people. So if you have someone special in your life that you've spent every single minute with this past year, this is another day to do more of that. Anyway, on tonight's show, your water is trying to kill you. Roy Wood Jr. celebrates America's greatest black spies, and we catch up on the biggest impeachment trial in 12 months. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with water, AKA lazy salsa. We all drink water every day, but recently in Florida, someone tried to turn the water into a weapon. Now to a shocking case of computer hacking in Pinellas County, Florida. Investigators are trying to hunt down the person who tried to poison a public water supply remotely. The plant operator monitoring the water plant in the Tampa Bay city of Oldsmar noticed computer breaches starting at about 8 a.m. Friday morning. The hacker was controlling the computer system's mouse and was able to increase the level of sodium hydroxide in the water supply from about 100 parts per million to more than 11,000 parts per million. This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. Uh, sodium hydroxide, also known as lye, is the main ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. If ingested in large amounts, sodium hydroxide can cause vomiting, chest, and abdominal pain. Fortunately, a plant operator immediately reduced the levels back to what was safe. Okay, this is insane. A hacker was this close to poisoning the water supply of a county in Florida. I mean, luckily it wouldn't have worked anyway, you know, since Floridians don't even drink water. They get all the hydration they need from Red Bull and whatever this is. Tastes like blue. But not only was this hacking evil, it was also just lazy. You wanna poison the water supply? You roll your ass out of bed and pee in the reservoir like they did in the good old days. Lazy ass hacking bitch. And by the way, is it just me? Or is it weird that the computer for Florida's water system even lets you pump that much sodium hydroxide into the water supply? Like, I mean, forget the hackers. Should the computer even have an option to poison the entire county? At least make it so you have to click on all the squares with streetlights first. Moving on to some international news out of New Zealand, Australia's Hawaii. In addition to being a full-size recreation of Middle Earth, New Zealand is also a real country with its own government. And yesterday, a meeting of parliament broke out into a fight over what it really means to show respect. A member of the New Zealand parliament was ejected because he was not wearing a tie. Rewiri Watiti, the co-leader of the country's Maori party, was asked to leave the chambers on Tuesday. It's all because of a tie mandate for male lawmakers. Watiti was wearing a traditional greenstone necklace that he says is a nod to his native people. As you can clearly see, this is this attire is business attire as far as I'm concerned. That is not part of my culture, uh, ties, uh, and it's forcing the indigenous peoples into wearing what I described as a colonial noose. Yes, thank you. This guy is so right. Nobody should have to wear a tie. They serve zero purpose. That's why instead of wearing a tie, I just wrap a fruit by the foot around my neck. If I'm gonna be uncomfortable, I'm at least gonna get my snack on. Also, why would you want to make this man wear a tie? 
ties were invented so that boring guys could try and look more interesting. Oh, look, I have a thing around my neck. This man has those amazing traditional tattoos. He doesn't need to be more interesting with a thing. You don't want to distract from that with a lame-ass tie. It's like making The Rock wear mom jeans. And look, I get that in the past, neckties served a very important purpose. You know, they were used to point to a guy's penis. But guys, it's 2021. We figured out where the penis is. We can get rid of the arrows now. If you ask me, ties are more trouble than they're worth. Why do you think there's always those creepy guys at the office? It's because their ties are choking them just a little bit all day long. And they're like, oh, I'm being choked. Is it sex time? It must be sex time. Why else would I be choked? Ties are so dumb that even colonizers couldn't get people on board with them. You need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, okay. I guess heaven sounds cool. And now I will take your land and I will sleep with your wife. Well, I mean, you've got the guns, so what can I say? And also, you must take this ribbon, wrap it around your neck, and suffocate yourself to look professional. Nigga, are you out of your mind? And finally, news from the world of sports. Ever since Colin Kaepernick began kneeling for the national anthem, professional teams have been grappling with how to handle all the drama around that moment. You've got fans who want to stand, you've got players who want to kneel, people trying to signal the beer guy while also keeping their hand over their hearts. But now, one NBA team has tried to find a completely different solution. If you go to a Dallas Mavericks game now, you will not hear or be able to stand for the national anthem because they're not playing it anymore. They're not singing it anymore. The Dallas Mavericks have ceased playing the national anthem before home games this season and do not plan to play it moving forward. A decision made by the owner, Mark Cuban, the Mavericks did not publicize the anthem's removal. This from Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas. The decision to cancel our national anthem off of the Dallas Mavericks is a slap in the face to every American and an embarrassment to Texas sell the franchise and some Texas Patriot will buy it. We are uh, uh, the land of the free and home of the Braves. That's right. This is the land of the free. Why aren't we forcing people to sing the national anthem? All right, look, people. I know that this is a big tradition in the US, but just so you know, the rest of the world thinks that it's really strange that America sings the anthem at their domestic sports games. Like in other countries, you only sing the national anthems at international sporting events, right? You don't do it for every game. That's like saying grace before tasting every free ice cream sample at the ice cream shop. Uh, and can I try the vanilla, please? For what we're about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. Mmm, can I try the chocolate too? For what we're about to receive, may I mean, just think about it. What does the national anthem even have to do with a basketball game? George Washington didn't beat the Redcoats in a game of three-on-three. Three. I mean, although he would have, dude was 6'2 in the 1700s. Back then, he was basically Shaq in a powdered wig. Yeah, man, we're gonna free this country. We're gonna write something about it. We're gonna make a United States of America, baby. Now, after the story broke, the NBA forced the Mavericks to start playing the anthem again, which Mark Cuban probably isn't too happy about. Luckily for Mark Cuban, though, I have a solution that Mark Cuban is so gonna love. Now, Mark, you recently ditched the national anthem, and I get it. After literally thousands of years, this song comes with a lot of baggage. We need a fresh start. That's why I came up with a new national anthem that I think you'll enjoy. I'll listen, but... Okay, here goes. 
A little bit of Kansas in my life. A little bit of Florida by my side. A little bit of Utah's what I need. A little bit of Georgia's what I see. A little bit <laughs> Okay, and then and then it goes into a call response part. When I say US, you say A. US? US? Anyway, that goes on for like six or seven minutes. And then we get to the climax, the big finish. Now you know America is a country on the earth. Unless you're screwing with us, it makes no sense whatsoever. You are so full of Oh, okay. Um, well, while, while I'm here, I, I also invented uh, an iPad, but for dogs. Uh, I call it the iPaw. <laughs> I'm out. Hey, thank you for your time. All right, let's move on now to our main story. The second impeachment of Donald Trump. And shout out to my boy Trump over there for getting impeached more times than Mike Pence has had sex. I see you, player. Today was day two of the trial. And we're gonna catch you up on all of the latest developments in the return of our classic segment from one year ago, The Magical Wonderful Road to Impeachment. The Magical Wonderful Road to Impeachment is where we go. That's probably presidential harassment. Today, the Democrats began laying out their case for why President Trump should be held responsible for inciting the Capitol riots of January 6th. And between Trump's many speeches, interviews, and tweets, the prosecutors had a mountain of evidence at their disposal. It's basically a slam dunk case. I mean, this would be like having a murder suspect who left his DNA at the scene, dropped a bloody glove, and fled the scene in a Ford Bronco. There would be no way you couldn't convict that guy. It would be a... Wait, that happened? Now, in addition to the evidence against Trump, Prosecutors showed harrowing, never-before-seen footage of the attack on the Capitol and the violence inflicted on Capitol Police. So, we all expected the Democrats to present a competent, compelling case, but what nobody expected was that Trump's lawyers would be so terrible. They never addressed key issues. They went off on meandering tangents. One guy cried while reading a poem It was going so badly for the Republicans, I thought Ted Cruz was gonna start another insurrection just to change the subject. In fact, when Trump's lawyers were done, some of the harshest criticism came from Republican senators on their own team. Senator Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's biggest allies, saying, I thought I would figure out where he was going, but in the end, I don't know where he was going. Senator Susan Collins said I was perplexed by that first lawyer who seemed to not make any arguments at all. The first lawyer just rambled on and on and on and didn't really address the uh, constitutional argument. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. Now, if I'm an impartial juror, and one side's doing a great job, and the other side's doing a terrible job on the issue at hand, as an impartial juror, I'm gonna vote for the side that did the good job. Why do you think the Trump defense team did a terrible job? Did you listen to it? I did. Okay, then it speaks for itself. God damn, Bill Hader's dad is pissed. And I would be too. 
Trump's lawyers were so bad, they forced him to be impartial. Nobody should be forced to have an open mind. Seriously, though, do you know how bad a job those lawyers had to do that even Lindsey Graham turned on them? He wants to be on their side. That's like drawing something so bad that your kindergarten teacher roasts you for it. Okay, Billy, you know I wanna like this, but this is dog shit, my man. This doesn't look like a flower at all. In fact, I gotta show this to the other kids. Kids, everybody come together. Yo, look at this bitch-ass flower that Billy drew. Oh my God, Billy, you're so dumb. Now, of course, nobody was more upset by Trump's shitty lawyers than the man who was never gonna pay them anyway. Donald J. Trump. Sources familiar with Mr. Trump's reaction told CBS News he was angry with his lawyer's lackluster performance, which at times rambled on. At one point, nearly yelling at his television while Bruce Castor was making his case. That's right. Trump was reportedly yelling at the TV while watching his shitty lawyers make their opening arguments. Although to be fair, Trump also yells at the TV during commercials. Good luck with your boner, Mr. Viagra. We're all rooting for you. Those four hours are gonna be so much fun. But still, this is bad news for Trump's lawyers because Trump is a dude who'll spend four hours at a rally ranking his favorite department store. If he thinks you're rambling, then you know you fucked up. Luckily for these lawyers, we all know, and they know, that no matter how bad their defense is, they're still gonna win this trial. Which on the one hand makes a mockery of the entire idea of accountability, but on the other hand, it's gonna make for a very inspiring movie. To defend his impeachment, President Trump needed the best legal team in the country. Instead, he got these guys. My name is Bruce Castor. I am the lead prosecutor, lead uh, counsel for the 45th president of the United States. They were two hopeless lawyers who didn't prepare, barely tried, and may not even have law degrees. The president who's nearly yelling at his TV while he was watching the proceedings. I worked in this building 40 years ago. I got lost then and I still do. But they were about to find out that what matters isn't the strength of your case. It's having a defendant whose party won't convict him no matter what. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to end the impeachment trial because I think it's blatantly unconstitutional. It's simply beyond the constitutional authority of the Senate. President Trump is going to be acquitted. It's the impeachment trial critics are calling a sad moment for democracy and the founder's worst nightmare, underdog lawyers. A story of triumph against no odds. That words are what make our constitution, frankly. They sure do. All right, when we come back, Roy Wood Jr. takes a look at the history of black spies. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. As you know, February is Black History Month, and we're celebrating all month long with Roy Wood Jr. honoring the unsung heroes of black history with another episode of CP Time. <laughs> Gotta shoot my own stuff because of COVID. That looks good. Light looks good. All right, let's begin. Shit. I forgot to put on pants. Oh, well, hello there. 
welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture. Today, we'll be discussing the history of black spies, or as I call them, incognigros. Usually I have another camera over there. This is gonna take some getting used to. Anyway, I know that usually when you think of spies, you think of white folk like Jason Bourne, James Bond, or Jack Bauer. Huh. The spies are all white guys with the initial JB. Oh my God, Justin Bieber. But in actuality, black people have a long history of running intelligence operations. For example, you may know Harriet Tubman for her work freeing slaves in the Underground Railroad and for popularizing the bandana. But what you may not have known was that during the Civil War, she worked as a spy for the Union Army. That's right, Harriet Tubman was a spy and she had a great strategy for being ignored by the Confederates. It was called being black. At one point, Harriet Tubman led 300 black soldiers in a raid on Southern plantations. Can you imagine how terrified slave owners must have been? That was actually when they invented blackface. They put it on and said, yeah, go get those slave owners. Another black spy you may not have known about is James Wormley Jones, who in 1919 became the FBI's first documented black special agent. In 1922, Jones infiltrated a black nationalist organization led by Marcus Garvey and helped get Marcus Garvey convicted of mail fraud. So Jones didn't just break barriers for black people in intelligence, he also used that intelligence to put black people behind barriers. He was the original Takashi 69. He spied on black people like a bitch. But black folk didn't just spy for the US government. There were also spies like Josephine Baker who moved to France in the 1920s where she became a world famous singer. When the Nazis invaded France in World War II, Baker smuggled secret messages and maps for the French resistance. When she heard something valuable, she would write it down, pin the note to her underwear, and relay the information back to Paris. And that's harder than it sounds. One time in grade school, I tried pinning a secret note to my drawers, ended up pinning my booty cheeks together. Suffice it to say, the school notes was very aware about my secret crush on Trisha. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr. This has been CP Time From Home. And remember, before the culture, we gotta tell the feds about Justin Bieber. Somebody need to call Joe Biden. Oh my God, Joe Biden's a JB too. These spies are everywhere. Thank you so much for that, Roy. All right, when we come back, Rada Blank will talk about her brand new movie that's getting Oscar buzz. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with writer, director, and performer Rada Blank. We talked about her critically acclaimed debut film based on her life and where she goes from here. Rada Blank, welcome to yeah. The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan. 
everyone is a fan of yours. I should be the one who's thanking you because I'm gonna read a list of just some of your latest achievements and all the accolades that your film is garnering. You have the New York Critics Best First Film Award, the Sundance Directing Award, the LA Critics Next Generation Award, the Black Critics Rising Star Award. Everyone has been showering you and your film with so many awards. I feel bad that I don't have an award. I should just give you one here. Yeah. I'm giving you the World <laughs> Cup. Congratulations, Rada. you have won the Daily Show World Cup Award. Oh my I, like, it has been quite a ride for you. Are, are you just surfing on this wave of success? I'm, I'm doing my best, Trevor. I mean, it's weird because it's all happening in a square, in a virtual world. And so many times I'm not even present to receive an award. Um, but, you know, I go on Twitter and that makes things all the more real, just in terms of people <laughs> in their celebrations of the project. But um, it's, it's, it's been interesting to celebrate anything when so much crazy is going on in the world. Right. But I, I try to find a way. That. I try to find a way. Well, for those who don't know, your film, The 40-Year-Old Version, is truly, in my opinion, a cinematic masterpiece. And oh. it's a story loosely based on your life and your journey as a black woman who's a playwright struggling to make her name in an industry that keeps blocking her out. And it, it's heartfelt, it's funny, it's beautifully shot. For you, you know, as, as the person who wrote, directed, and starred in this film, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was personal to you. Uh, you, why, why did you want to, you know, I think, be at the helm of all of those aspects? Well, it wasn't something I was planning to do. I just felt like in order to tell a story in this way, I had to take control very much like my protagonist. Um, things weren't going uh, swimmingly well for me in my career. Um, I, unlike her, I have not choked a theater producer, but I have felt the urge to choke many of the gatekeepers. And um, I had gotten fired off of a film job, one of my first screenwriting jobs. And I just, I felt like I needed to take my voice back. And so in order to not get fired, I decided I would play every role so that I couldn't, you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. What's interesting is this is a tale about somebody doing their best to try and achieve their dreams, even beyond their so-called sell-by dates, you know? Mm -hmm. And then in telling that story, you have achieved that success. Do you, do you sometimes think about how surreal it is that the film has ended up in many ways fulfilling the central narrative of the story? Yeah, I mean, every single day, I, there are moments that happen that feel like I'm actually in the film on my character's journey, um, because very much like my character, I've had a lot of the same obstacles in my way, whether people thought I wasn't, you know, cover girl or lead material, or I didn't have a look, or, you know, you hit 40 and you should be put out to pasture. I really do hope that the messaging of the film, especially for black women, is that you don't age out of your passion. And if you have the notion to tell a story, uh -huh. do it, you know, take control, you know, follow the lead of many of our DIY filmmakers like Spike Lee, you know, and, and find a crew and shoot that shit. Shoot Can that I say shit. Shit on the I like that. You should put that on a shirt. Shoot that shit. Shoot that shit. I think that's a fantastic slogan to go with. Um, <laughs> I would love to know what it's been like for you as, as, as a creator. You know, you, you always wanted to break into Broadway. You always wanted to write. You are a playwright. You wanted to yeah. break into this yeah. world. But it has felt like for many, not just yourself, 
that there are gatekeepers who determine what stories should and shouldn't be told and how they should and shouldn't be told. And you've always bucked that trend almost at your, at, at your detriment in well, working through that, in telling that story, yeah? Well, you know, um, I feel like while a lot of the people in those positions are well-meaning, they tend to cater to the audience. There's always this kind of dance in terms of what's being programmed. And then when the Black plays uh, show up, it seems to be a Black story that caters to their um, their membership's idea of what an authentic Black story is. I mean, hence the song Poverty Porn. Where, you know, I'm kind of raising a lens on the industry's celebration of Black pain. Yes, there are always going to be gatekeepers. And I do think we should call people out when there are racist practices or things that are keeping marginalized people from getting on these stages. But I say don't wait on those people, you know, to affirm you. You know, um, a good friend of mine, her name is Denai Guerrero. You may know her as Michonne. She once (laughs) said to me... Yeah, the zombie slaying girl. Um, She once said to me after I had been rejected by yet another theater, she said, stop trying to make these people love you, Rada. Go where the love is. And so I think that for storytellers, yes, it's great if we can get Marvel stories or get the bigger studios to get behind our storytelling. But what do we do if they don't? You know, we right. have to figure out ways to, and, and I think that's great because we need independent filmmaking. We need that to be a part of the landscape of storytelling. Everyone can't do a Marvel film, you know? When you look at your journey, you spent a lot of time knocking on the doors of Broadway, and yet it seems like the film industry has, has, has welcomed you with open arms in celebrating your project. Do you see yourself now going fully into the world of film or do you see yourself coming back to Broadway in some way, shape or form? Um, you know, some of them theater producers, um, they calling me now, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> you would think I was on some slim fast diet and I lost a little weight and now they all up in my DMs. But, you know, I, I, I hope there's an opportunity to tell a story there. I think my voice tends to be lean more towards social justice issues in theater. Mm-hmm. And I do want to tell those stories, but I did this to break into the filmmaking business. I know people think because I'm in my own film that maybe this was my audition for other roles. Actually, no, this is just me being strategic. I knew I couldn't play 39 forever. You know what I mean? Um, even though I moisturize. Um, but I I want to make film. I want to make film. I want to compete um, with major filmmakers of our time. When, when someone is watching this movie, they might ask themselves, okay, who is Rada Blank? Is she an actress? Is she a filmmaker? I found myself going, is she an undercover MC? Because it seems like a joke in the film, but I mean, you know, Radimus Prime has got some rhymes. Trevor, I got bars. I mean, um, you know, the the 40-year-old version is an origin tale. Um, And I have always been an MC. And, um, you know, I remember telling somebody I wanted to do a movie about a woman who decided to become an MC at 40 and their first inclination was to laugh. And I kind of got offended by that because it's like, why is that so funny? You know right. what I'm saying? Like, why is it that Busta Rhymes, Ghostface and, and all these other MCs can rhyme in their 40s, 50s and 60s, some of them. Um, 
And, and why couldn't I get some of that? So I am an MC and I will always be one. Um, and I got some stuff coming up. I got some stuff coming up for the naysayers who think that it is just a joke. Um, but yeah, I feel like the culture, I'm the same age as the culture. And why can't, right, right. you know, I still have something to say. I, I get that at some point it was youth culture, but hip hop has involved evolved to include people from different parts of the world, different, you know, uh, uh, kinds of uh, lifestyles mm -hmm. and so you know i'm here to rep for the over 40 mc because we we do exist yeah album title shoot that shit shoot that shit that's what it you know what i'm saying be. and you gotta whole come merch line. you gotta come and drop 16 i'm, I'm my, coming through you know, are you kidding me my um my growing afro you know what are i'm saying man the flow from the fro the flow from you the don't even fro. understand right now retta what the <laughs> flow from the fro Keep it warm in the dome. What? What? Oh man, you got you got me. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go write rhymes right now. You get back Please. to your press tour. You get back to winning those awards. Thank you so oh, much for joining you. me on the show, Rada. Thanks for having me, Trevor. This was awesome. Don't forget, people. The 40-year-old version is available now on Netflix. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go. This month is Black History Month, so please consider supporting Barbershop Books. They're an organization creating child-friendly reading spaces in barbershops and providing early literacy training to barbers, all to inspire black boys and other vulnerable children to read for fun. If you're able to help out, all you gotta do is go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if your water has been hacked, Try unplugging it and plugging it back in. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 